Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Could we turn please to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for our reading this evening. And it's nice to be back with you again this evening. Uh, for the second of these two weeks and to have fellowship with you again in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and reading from verse 11. First Corinthians 1 and 11. Let us hear the word of God. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, 
to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. A number of years ago, I attended a minister's fraternal meeting of ministers. And in our company was a certain man who had just been installed into the pastorate of a church that would be described by any accounts as a difficult church. A church with deep divisions and deep personality clashes, number of factions. And someone asked this man, how are you approaching all the problems in your church? Oh, he said, I'm just preaching the word. Now, my proposition to you this evening is simple. The answer to all of the problems in churches today is the exegetical preaching of God's word. Exegesis in the sense that when we read God's word, we preach what is there. There are too many preachers who get an idea into their head, look for a proof text, and then think that's it's settled. That's called eisegesis reading into the word of God what man believes rather than exegesis bringing out of the word of God what God is teaching us now in Corinth one of the problems that was besetting the church and there were many was this factionalism division if you look back at chapter 1 and verse 12, you will see there that there were a number of people in the church who followed Paul. Some followed Apollos. Some followed Peter. Some even, I think probably self-righteously, were saying, oh, well, you can be of all those people. We are of Christ. I say that only because of an experience that I had some time ago. Uh, when I went into uh, a certain 
Christian establishment in Scotland and I was talking to a lady and we began to talk about worship and um, she asked me my views on worship and I told her and I tried to explain to her the regulative principle of worship and I tried to explain it by telling her the difference in theological perception of worship between Calvin and Luther and when she heard me mention those two men's names her reply was I'm not interested in Calvin or Luther I only listen to the words of Jesus so I thought that's okay we'll go to John 4 and see what Jesus says about worship exactly the same as Calvin Some of these people in Corinth were doing just that, very self-righteously. Some were saying, I am of Paul, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Peter. I'm a follower of Apollos. And some were saying, oh well, I'm a follower of Christ. And there was this deep division. And they were arguing among themselves over which minister, which person, if we include those who were self-righteously talking about Christ, had contributed most to the local church. And what kind of preacher would occupy their pulpit? It truly was the church of the personality cult. Now this is what Paul is tackling here. It's exactly what he's tackling in chapter 1 and early in chapter 2. Many of the problems and the ideas that he's introduced in chapter 1 are dealt with over again in chapter 2. In chapter 1, for example, he briefly notes the work of the, the Trinity and redemption. In chapter 2, he peppers the chapter with references to the work of the three persons of the Trinity. But before he does, he begins that chapter with a straightforward endorsement of the solid, sound, exposition of God's word as the method of dealing with problems in the local church and I think that's important there are very, very many churches today I say within our congregational union and further afield where the solid purposeful exegesis of God's word would heal divisions and would bring people together and would cause a biblical uh, witness to be maintained in the church's area. Let's look at these verses, chapter 2 and verse 1 down to 5. And let's see the kind of preaching that Paul is speaking about here so that we don't make any mistakes. Look at his preaching method described. Because he's talking about himself here. He's defending his own ministry among the people of Corinth. From verse 6 he switches to the plural we and us. But in these first five verses he's saying I came to you. I determined. I was with you. He's speaking in this kind of an autobiographical manner. Describing for us his ministry. Look at it. It's ministry that always comes preaching with meekness. He says, I, brethren, 
when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. It was simplicity. There's no eloquence in the preaching of Paul. The very essence of this expositionary ministry, exegetical ministry, is simplicity. He's not there to impress the congregation with high-sounding words, with fancy phrases. He's there to preach the gospel. The word that's translated excellence here simply could also be translated superiority. There's plenty of people in pulpits today who like to get up and demonstrate their theological superiority, who like to get up and demonstrate their verbal ability. It may well impress people. It may well give prestige for some preacher, but those words will be no eternal value whatsoever. And there will certainly not be conviction of sin. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 19, Paul says, I will come to you shortly if the Lord will, and I will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. Preaching with meekness was preaching that didn't have human eloquence in its forefront, nor did it have human wisdom. I remember hearing a a testimony once of a man who long had resisted the call of God upon his life. He went to a church where there was a very eloquent preacher. And week after week he listened to the preacher. And on the way out through the door he would argue with the preacher. And the preacher would come round to his house and he would try to persuade him of his need to be saved. And he would argue with the preacher and he would wind the preacher up and he would declare himself an atheist. And yet he would still come to church for God was dealing in his heart. The preacher just for some reason wasn't getting through. And um, one day, in the midst of one of these arguments, in the midst of one of these debates that this man delighted in having, the preacher forgot his eloquence, forgot his human wisdom, and in sheer frustration, he just cried out to the young man in frustration, I don't care what you say. Jesus is the Savior. He's my Savior. And he died on the cross for me. And the young man who was giving the testimony said at that point, I had no more arguments to give. Instead of using fancy sounding words, the preacher for the first time ever had told me of Christ from his heart. Paul's preaching was preaching with meekness. There was the testimony of God because it emphasized God's God's truth. He says in verse 1, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. You see, the preacher is not an advisor on how to live your life. The preacher is not someone who comes to you to tell you how you can feel better about yourself. Or how to feel good after a meeting. Or how to think more positively about the circumstances life has placed you in. The purpose of the preacher is to declare unto you the testimony of God. 
but yet to do it with meekness. Preaching with meekness is how Paul describes it. And preaching with fear. I take heart from this. In verse 3, when Paul is describing his preaching methods here, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I tell you, I know exactly what that means. This is not physical weakness. Paul, you see, Paul had done hard physical labour in his ministry. He had wrought to earn his living, ministering in Greece. He talked about in Acts chapter 18 and verse 3, where it says, because he was of the same craft, the same trade, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And then in Acts 20 and 34, he was able to say, yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them who were with me. It wasn't physical weakness. Paul wasn't afraid of hard work. It wasn't a fear for his safety either. Paul had been beaten. He'd been in prison for the faith. He hadn't got a fear of being mocked or being scoffed, for he'd endured all that. He had no fear of preaching the gospel. None whatsoever. He was never ashamed to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then what was this weakness? What caused this trembling? What caused... Uh, this fear to come upon him. It was the anxiety of a man who faced a great task. Do you know that God will hold every preacher to account for the words that he utters in the pulpit? I tell you, friends, we could stand in some pulpits and sit in some churches these days. And what do we hear? We hear flippant jests. We hear wasted opportunities. We hear political point scoring. We hear preachers promoting their own agenda instead of proclaiming and declaring God's word. I tell you, my friends, it is an awesome task to stand in a pulpit and to proclaim God's word. For God will hold such a man to account for what he has said in a pulpit. Preaching with fear. And preaching that resulted in something. For he says, my, verse 4, my speech and My preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. People's hearts were touched. Christians were encouraged or built up. Sometimes they were challenged. Sometimes they were admonished. People were changed. Souls were being saved. It wasn't due to Paul's choice of words. It was because of the work of the Holy Spirit accompanying the preaching of the word. Look at this very carefully. My speech and my preaching 
was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. Now what does that mean? You see, a sermon in the Lord's house given to the Lord's people is something entirely different from a lecture or an oration or a talk. A sermon is verbally delivered. Of course it is. And that in itself should be in the power of the Holy Spirit. The, The preacher, hopefully, will have experienced the leading of the Holy Spirit in the preparation of the Word of God. A sermon can't be an academic exercise. It can't be an essay simply read out to a number of people because the Holy Spirit will have guided the heart of the preacher. But more so, what makes a sermon different than a lecture? is that it is differently applied. When a preacher has prepared his heart, when a congregation have gathered together before the Lord and prayed that the Lord would speak to their hearts, then the Holy Spirit in God's will takes the words of the preacher and applies them spiritually to the hearts of the hearers. It's that extra dimension that makes preaching different from any other kind of public address. The preacher is not trying to persuade you by words. A preacher is simply seeking to be faithful to the word of God and praying at the same time that the Holy Spirit himself will work in your heart and mind and bring us into conformity with God's will. For only the Holy Spirit can convict of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can convert the sinner. Only the Holy Spirit can impart life to the sinner. For Jesus himself tells us that when he is come, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Paul speaks of his preaching being in demonstration Of the spirit and power. The word demonstration just means convincing proof. The work of the Holy Spirit following the preaching of the word is so strong that people are convinced that God's word is God's truth. We see there a description of Paul's own preaching method. And everyone who enters into a pulpit would do well to read it and to digest it and to practice it. Spurgeon once had an illustration on this subject. He talked about how from the deck of a boat he stood one day and threw bread down into the sea. And he saw eventually little fishes coming 
And his exact words were, small fishes came in shoals until there seemed to be more fish than water. They came to feed. They needed no music. Uh, Spurgeon said that. He then concluded, let the preacher give his people food and they will flock to it. Even if the sounding brass of rhetoric and the tinkling symbols of oratory are silent. Paul's preaching is described. It was preaching with meekness. It was preaching with fear. It was preaching that resulted in the work of the Holy Spirit and depended on the work of the Holy Spirit to drive it home to the hearts of sinners. But there was a priority to this preaching. For if you look back here to verse 2, you'll see that Paul's priority is made very, very clear. I determined, he says, not to know anything among you. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our priority. Just like Peter in Acts chapter 2. Paul had this one great emphasis in his ministry. It was so totally centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He's emphatic about this. He resolved to know absolutely nothing. He resolved to be acquainted with nothing. He resolved to make a display of the knowledge of nothing at all and to be conscious of nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's determined. Now, in some parts of the country today, we would describe a person who's determined as being Thran, wouldn't we? You know what a Thran person is? Well, Paul's being Thran about this. He will not budge on this. He is determined on this. He's determined that the person of Christ would be presented to these various factions within the church at Corinth. The person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's already talked about that in chapter 1. He's already said at the end of the chapter in verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. The Corinthian church had no right whatsoever to be taking sides and stands and per over personalities in the church. Each one of them was nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. That's important. When we speak of the Lord, when we talk of Christ, his life and his miracles and his death on the cross it touches the heart of man doesn't it? Mankind I doubt if there's ever a sinner who has come to Jesus who has sat down first and rationally in his own mind established the theology of salvation soteriology in his mind before he comes to Christ. I don't know of what. But there are many who hear the story of Jesus. They hear of his love for the lost. 
They hear of his compassion for the sick. They hear of his death on the cross for sinners. They hear of his risen uh, estate. They hear of his coming again. And that sinner will find that his hardened heart, his sinful heart is softened. The ground is prepared for the sowing of the seed. And I think that one of the things that we must do often in our pulpits is to speak always of Jesus and him crucified. Talks about the person of Christ. Talks about the death of Christ. He concentrated on the cross in his preaching. For it's only through the death of the Lord Jesus that we are ever cleansed from our sins. Paul's priority is very clear. I determine not to know anything among you. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. One last wee thought. In his pulpit ministry, Paul has a purpose. For in verse 5 it says here that the aim and the objective of his preaching was that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. A purpose to Paul's sermons. Uh, I'm not getting into that business of the purpose driven sermon by any means or any other thing along those lines. But there was purpose to Paul's sermons. And the purpose was to increase the faith of those who listened. So that they did not rely on their own ideas and made up theology. But rather that they would stand upon and trust in God's word and the power of God alone. I know that's so much needed today, isn't it? Isn't there so much of man's wisdom in church life today? Isn't it true that the the thrust of preaching is to please people in our services? To entertain people in church. That's what modern wisdom comes off with. So that we get them into the building. We have to do something to get people in. And much of the worship in churches today is what pleases men rather than what pleases God. So our preaching must be purposeful. We don't raise the standard of God By amusing people. By appealing to the better nature of man, whatever that is. Some preachers have become so adept at that. That they preach in pulpits for years. And they would call themselves as evangelicals. And they would proclaim evangelical truth. And they never, ever managed to apply it to sinners' hearts. Spurgeon again used an illustration of two Chinese entertainers that he once seen at a public exhibition. One of them, he said, was set up as a target and the other showed his dexterity, Spurgeon said, by hurling knives that stick into a board at the back of his colleague. Close to the man's body. You can imagine it. A knife thrower. His skill is that he misses the target. His skill is that whenever he throws the knife at the man, the knife never actually hits. It 
goes past his hand. It goes between his fingers. It goes right past his ears. Between his legs. They fly past him. Over the top of his head. Spurgeon says on each side of his neck. The art of this knife thrower. Is to not hit the target. Spurgeon concludes. There seem to be quite a number of preachers. Who are remarkably proficient. In the same art. In the spiritual department. Isn't it true? Paul had a purpose. The purpose was that he would build up the church. The purpose was that through the preaching. The sincere humble preaching in the Holy Ghost. Of the cross of Christ. That he would build up the church. So that the men and women who came to Corinth. Would not be standing in their own wisdom. But would be standing in the power of Almighty God. Which is the only safe ground on which we can stand. So here we have Paul's preaching described. And it's priority declared, truly centred in Christ, and its purpose demonstrated, that it might have an effect on those who listen, that through the work of the Holy Spirit it might make them think, maybe cause them some pain, maybe convince them of the inadequacy of their lives, maybe convince them that they are sinners, so that they reject the teaching of men, and turn to the powerful Almighty God, in whom and whom alone they can find eternal help. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.